Reformed Church. Uh, if you haven't met before, my name's Ryan, and today's Bible reading will come from 1 John, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 2. John 1 verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what are we going to do with, uh, and there's that, we've had to learn to roll with everything. Then there's the face masks you're currently wearing, there's learning how far exactly 1.5 metres is, so you can stand that far away from each other. There's doing everything on Zoom, and even for a while at least, doing church on Zoom. They've all been significant changes. But I think actually there's been much deeper changes as well uh, in the way that we do things during the pandemic period. Because we can't always connect with each other anymore, can we? I don't mean online, that's kind of pseudo-connection. I mean, we can't even always be together all the time. So we've had to kind of learn to do things lots of ways without being together, which 
I think often makes us feel quite disconnected. And because of living through a deadly virus and all the political and economic and practical challenges of that, a lot of us feel quite anxious quite a lot of the time. And then there's this constant search for the new normal since so much has changed. We're not really sure what normal is anymore anyway or, and when it's going to come. And that can make us really tired of change. And there's just a general sense of fatigue and confusion that smart people now call them languishing. There's so much that's been challenging us and making life hard. There's so many questions and unresolved issues floating around, I think, in everyone's hearts and minds. And there are often questions like, if I'm not connected, do I belong? How do I know if I belong? Why do I belong there or with them? And if I belong, how should I behave? But if everyone behaves that way and I don't behave, does that mean I don't belong? And I think all of those issues actually flow over into spiritual issues, don't they? Very easily. Where do I belong spiritually? How do I know that I belong spiritually? How do I know that I belong? I mean, do I belong to God and to His people? Why would I belong there and with them? And if I belong, how should I behave as one of God's people? And if I don't behave the way that other other members of God's people behave, does that mean I don't really belong? Next weekend, we're going to think about belonging as we read together the book of 1 John. And we're going to try and to get some real clarity, some certainty and some reality about what it means and how you know about belonging to God, belonging to Jesus, and belonging to each other as the people of God. It's times it's going to be hard work. One John's a funny book because it's kind of hard work. At one level it's simple, another level it's very deep. But I'm hoping that it's all important and valuable. So let's uh, start thinking about uh, some of these big things. The first thing I think in some ways we need to think about is how we know what's true. Uh, here's a bit of deep thinking. Socrates, the great uh, philosopher, the great Greek philosopher of the ancient world, I was not a Christian, by the way. I was listening to a whole bunch of religious philosophers. And as he listened, he realised that they often contradicted each other and none of them actually seemed to have any real certainty about what they were saying. They all seemed to be roughly equally ignorant. So he concluded that we won't really know the truth about God or the gods until someone comes from the gods to tell us. All else is speculation, he said. Clever man. Well, listen again to the start of 1 John, chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Now here the beginning means not the beginning of John's life or even of John's faith, but from the very beginning, the beginning of the world. The beginning of everything when the world began. It sounds actually like... I'll see if this is going to work for me. Yep, there we go. Uh, it sounds a bit like John, that is the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Where it says, I'll step out of the way, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word being Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. So 1 John chapter 1 echoes John chapter 1. But even then, that's actually doing a bit more echoing, isn't it? From Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
So John tells us about someone who is there at the foundation of the world. Jesus. Jesus who was and is God. But how can we even know that Jesus is real? Well, that's a good question. Well, have a look still in 1 John chapter 1, still in verse 1. Which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, the word really means examined or looked at very closely, and our hands have touched. So Jesus is real and tangible. John heard him and saw him and touched him. In fact, John says we because he's talking about himself and the other apostles, a whole bunch of them. And the unanimous report was what they saw and heard and touched. That is, they were eyewitnesses and earwitnesses and even hand witnesses of Jesus. We're being told Jesus is not a myth or a fable. This is not Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. This is history. See, the Christian faith is quite different than Buddhism. You may well know that in Buddhism there are lots of ideas, lots of philosophy, and it doesn't really matter if Buddha lived or didn't live. It doesn't really matter if he did or didn't. But Jesus is more than a message, more than a philosophy. He's a person, and the Christian faith is all about him, it's all about this person. So it really matters to us if it's historical, if it's real, if it's true. So Jesus, we're told, was real. The Christian faith is about history, what these people saw and heard and touched even doubting Thomas. That means that we can know God is not un an unknowable mystery that transcends experience or knowledge. We can know God because God appeared. God appeared. The God who is eternal, spiritual and invisible became physical, mortal, visible and tangible in Jesus. John heard and saw and examined and touched Jesus, the incarnate, the risen, the living one from God, who is God. How do we know that? I mean, how do we, that is, in the 21st century know that? Well, look at the end of verse 1. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. That's Jesus. So John heard and saw and touched Jesus before and after his death and resurrection. And after his resurrection, he heard his words, saw him in the upper room, looked at him and touched his wounds. And now he tells us. Other people weren't there, so their testimony isn't important. But John was there, as were the other apostles, and so they can tell us. As you heard, I work with uni students, and lots of uni students today have very strong opinions about whether Jesus really was or wasn't historical, with minimal research. But John did all the research. First hand, actually. First eyes. Which is excellent. Because John's readers, we think, in 1 John, had no personal experience, that is, in a physical or visual sense, of Jesus. But John did. And we're like him too, aren't we? See, do you trust in Jesus? That's a question. You can say yes. Yes, okay. Yeah. Do you love Jesus? Great. What does he look like? 
oh, that's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? We love and trust someone we don't even know what they look like because we've never seen him. But John saw him and tells us. John, therefore, is the critical link. John is really important for us. Jesus is historically accessible and accessible through John and the other apostles. And so John says again there in verse 2, the life, that's Jesus, appeared. We've seen it, that's Jesus, and testified to it, that's Jesus, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, that's Jesus, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. The disciples saw the eternal life, Jesus himself. He came from God and has returned to God. He came to give eternal life, life with God, in fellowship, that is, in relationship with God. In fact, listen to why John proclaims the message of Jesus. This is in verses 3 and 4. Have a look at verses 3 and 4. We, that's John and uh, probably the other apostles, proclaim to you, what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So what John's telling us is that proclamation leads to fellowship. Him telling us about Jesus means we can have fellowship around Jesus. John proclaims Jesus to us so that we can have fellowship with him. But it's even more important than that, isn't it? That Christian fellowship isn't just fellowship with each other. It's fellowship with Jesus and with God the Father. See, in a sense, John is introducing us to a chain. Oh, it's touching that. Stop that. That's great. John's introducing us to a chain. No, like that. The Father is united to the Son, is in fellowship with the Son. John is in fellowship with the Son and the Father because he saw, touched, heard Jesus, believed in him. And now we, as we listen to John, come into fellowship with John and with the Son and with the Father. It's almost like a chain or a train or in non-COVID times, a conga line, if you know that. <laughs> where actually each time a new person kind of grabs on, they kind of join the fellowship. They grab, we can't do that anymore, it's not COVID safe, please don't do it during free time because I'll get in lots of trouble. So please don't do that. You get the basic idea, don't you? That is, fellowship is something we have in common. We join together in fellowship because the Father sent His Son, because the Son sent the disciples, the apostles, and they wrote to us. So when we believe we have fellowship with all of them. All of them. Fellowship is that deep thing we have in common. Fellowship is not a cup of tea and a biscuit, or a coffee and a donut, if you're that way inclined. It's a deeper partnership, isn't it? It's a deeper connection than that. It's a deeper commitment than that. Fellowship is deeper than friendship. It's even deeper than family. And John, like the other apostles, are the critical link because they tell us about Jesus. We have fellowship because we have fellowship with John. We believe what he says. We believe and obey what God says. We live by the truth, the truth about Jesus. And so we have fellowship with Jesus. And so we have fellowship with John. 
But of course, if we don't believe what John says, then we don't have fellowship with Jesus. We don't have fellowship with God, the Father, and so we don't belong. To say it a different way, John proclaims, verse 1, he testifies and proclaims, verse 2, he proclaims, verse 3, and he writes, verse 4, about Jesus so that we can join the fellowship that he has with Jesus and with God the Father. So listening to this book, actually believing this book is very important. See, you can't disbelieve the Bible and belong to God, is what we're being told. Just to be really clear and really blunt. The Bible and belonging are deeply connected. You have to believe John to be in fellowship with him and so in fellowship with Jesus and so in fellowship with the Father. When John talks about fellowship, he's not talking about fellowship in experience. He's not even talking about unity that has no theology. He's talking about a unity that comes through theology, through the foundational teaching about who God is, what he's done, and what it means to trust in him. And this fellowship, you can't always see. It's not always obvious. Kathy and I used to live in Melbourne, long before COVID hit, just you're safe, it's okay, don't worry about it. Uh, long before COVID hit, we lived in Melbourne, and we went to a church where most people in the church looked like most people here. So, with a, an East Asian uh, ethnic background, family background, right? We went to that church, uh, we look like this. Uh, yeah, exactly right, yeah, yeah, pasty white people. And, and so, often friends would, sorry, apologies to the pasty white people uh, in the congregation. Uh, and, and so, what, sometimes people would visit, and if they were pasty white people, they'd say to us, why, why do you come to this church? And we're like, Oh, it's God's people and we read the Bible and we talk about Jesus and they say, oh, but like, do you really feel like you belong? What were they saying? They were saying, actually, see, the fundamental thing is your ethnic identity. That's what fundamental, that's what they were saying. And of course, they're wrong. Because whether you have a Chinese background, an Indian background, whether you're from, your family's from Africa or you're a pasty white person, whatever it is, and you trust in Jesus because John has told us about him, we have the most fundamental fellowship, the deepest union the world has ever seen. Okay? That's what we have. And let's flip it around. And if you hang with people who look just like you, with the same ethnic background as you, but you don't have faith in Jesus, that is, you don't have a common faith in Jesus, if some are believers are not, and some are not believers, you actually are not in fellowship. Do you get it? So I'm not just saying that to, to make Michael feel like he belongs. Right? <laughs> I'm saying that because I think we get this wrong all the time, don't we? That our deepest fellowship is not about whether we look the same as the people around us, but whether we all believe John's word, so believe in Jesus, and so have fellowship with the Father. That's the most foundational thing. And did you notice in verse 4 that John tells us about Jesus so that we have, far, so we have fellowship together so that there's joy? Isn't that cool? When we join in Christian fellowship, there's joy. There's great joy. Do you feel that joy? Do you feel it? 
of being together as God's people in fellowship, one, one with another? Do you feel when people become believers and, and join the church for the very first times, someone's actually entered into fellowship with you? There's great joy. There should be great joy. Because they're not just joining this club and so the numbers are up. They're joining into the deepest fellowship the world has ever seen, the universe will ever see. Now, John is going to give us some special insider information. That's what he's going to do in verse 5. See, in verse 5, having told us all about the fellowship we have, John's now going to tell us about the central message, the big message, the big idea. Notice that's, that's how he begins, chapter 1, verse 5. He says, this is the message we've heard from him, that's Jesus, and declare to you. So what will the message from Jesus, the message that John preaches to us, what will it be, this big idea? Jesus is Lord. God loves you. Jesus saves. You might guess that kind of stuff. What does John actually say? Verse 5, God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. It's a bit of a surprise, isn't it, for a big theological message. But it's true and it's important. God is light. God is absolute purity, goodness and integrity. Our God is not like the Greek gods, uh, the gods of Greek thought, who are a mixture of good and evil with just a few superpowers on the side. Now, the God of the Bible is 100% pure and good. No sin, no impurity, no compromise. He never deceives, he never distorts, he's never unjust. He's never cruel, he's never uncaring. And at this point, it would be really good for us to stop and reflect on God's purity. But actually, that's not what, God, what John does. Do you notice that? See, 1 John is such a practical letter that he makes these sweeping, grand, enormous statements about God and then immediately applies them to the readers. And so he says in verse 6, because God is light, verse 6, if we claim, or literally if we say, to have fellowship, remember that key word from verse 3, with him, that is, with the God who is light, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Now, John's already told us that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. And we know that light and darkness are mutually exclusive, don't we? I mean, darkness and light can't coexist. If you're not sure that's true, then try this experiment tonight. Try in your bedroom tonight, on camp, uh, wait till it's really dark and everyone's asleep, and then turn on the light and see if it, darkness and light can coexist. <laughs> You'll be really popular. <laughs> no, they can't. No, they can't. And actually, if you want to try another trick, try this one. Um, if your room is really messy, whether it's because of you or the other people in your room, try this. Just turn out the light and you'll see all the mess is gone. Because <laughs> that's a really bad thing, isn't it? Because you can hide the mess in the dark so you can't hide the mess in the light. John picks up that idea in places like John chapter 3. Where he says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. 
Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. So that may be seen plainly that what has been done has been done in the sight of God. Now in 1 John, John kind of applies that and says it in a slightly different way. He applies it into the idea of fellowship with God that we saw in uh, already in the, the verses before us. And his point is that the character of God defines and shapes the character of our fellowship with God, the God who is light. So to have a lifestyle characterized by darkness is to not be Christian. If we walk, which is a way of talking about live, if we live a dark life, that is, if we have darkness as our lifestyle and yet call ourselves Christian, we're lying. If your lifestyle is characterised, I don't mean if you sin occasionally, you know, that happens every day for all of us. But if your life is shaped and characterised by sin, by darkness, you are a deceiver if you call yourself a Christian. You're just not telling the truth. So you may say you have fellowship with God, but you don't. And that doesn't matter if you're a CPE member or elder or pastor. If we say we belong to Team Light, but we live playing the game of darkness, which team do we actually belong to? Darkness. Team Darkness. That's where we belong. So friends, this morning, can I say, if you've been walking in darkness, if this year, or even during COVID time, has affected us all, you've kind of become spiritually nocturnal. If now you've become an owl or an insect that really loves the dark and flees from the light, today and this weekend is the time to change. Stop calling yourself a Christian, or even better, come into the light. Come into the light. That's where John points us, actually. See, he doesn't just say it negatively, don't walk in darkness. Now he actually says it positively in verse 7, walk in the light. See what he says in verse 7? But... If we walk in the light as He is in the light, God, Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. When we walk in the light, when we live lives of purity and faithfulness to God, we show that we have fellowship with God and with other Christians. Our behaviour shows our belonging. Not that we have to be a perfect person. I mean, living faithfully includes relying on God's forgiveness, on Jesus' forgiveness, on the sacrificial death of Jesus. That's the point he makes, isn't it? The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And it's the blood of Jesus that brings us into fellowship. It's its foundation. And not only that, it keeps on cleansing us. It keeps us in fellowship. With God and each other. Did you notice this? See, it's not the blood of his son purified us from all sin. 
but purifies us from all sin. Continually, not just once. Jesus' blood, his sacrificial death, is our spiritual lifeblood. It keeps us connected to God. It keeps cleaning that relationship between us and God. And in a sense, it's also our social lifeblood. That is the connection between each other. A key idea throughout the book is that the death of Jesus is a real event and a powerful event. And in it, we have a relationship with God and with each other between ourselves and other believers. It repairs, it cleans, it maintains both the vertical and the horizontal relationships. And the death of Jesus explains the purity duality of the book. See, we're told we're supposed to be purified by Jesus, absolutely. But we're also supposed to live a pure life, and that sense, purify ourselves. And it all fits together because we need to, what we need to do is to live out the purity that God has given us and keeps giving us through Jesus' death. Jesus purifies us. He makes us clean. And so we live a pure and clean life. We live out what we've been given through Jesus. So God is light. We must walk in the light. That makes sense. But what do you think will be the next thing that we're to look for in someone who truly belongs to God? Love for God? A generous heart in the care programs? Discipline, spiritual practices? Well, check this out. Check out verse 8. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, a prerequisite for being a true Christian, but truly belonging to God, is being a sinner. Isn't that amazing? CPE Church, you are not a holy huddle. You are not a Christian club. You are not a godly ghetto. You are not the religious right. It's a place for sinners. It's like... Alcoholics Anonymous, except it's Sinners Anonymous. It's all about people who need to seek forgiveness and reform. I'm amazed that some Christian communities are often shocked to find that, you know what, there are real sinners in the church. It's like, what do you think the church is? I think that's partly because some churches don't talk about sin, they only talk about victory which is a bit like a hospital not talking about sickness. This is a hospital. There are sick people here, but they're here to be made well. John focuses on this stuff, on these ideas, on the importance of understanding and confessing that we are sinners. On the foundational truth of that idea, because people don't like to think that it's true. People don't like to think that we're sinners. And you hear people say, look, we're not sinners, we're just ignorant. We just need enlightenment. Now, we're not sinners, we're, we're just all broken and we need mending. We're not sinners, we just sometimes make mistakes. 
like everyone. But all of these ideas are soaked in self-deception. So look at verse 8 again. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. See, Christians, true believers, dare to live their lives open before God with self-examined lives. Sin is not something we hide or deny, but something we seek to deal with. And how do we deal with it? By having Jesus deal with it for us. We come to Jesus openly and honestly. See, look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, He, God, Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so we confess our sins, we admit to them, we own up to them. I did the wrong thing because I'm to blame. It's my fault. There are no excuses. It's my fault. It's your fault. Not our parents, not our government, not society, not environment, not peer pressure. It's your fault. It's my fault. We are sinners. It's not that I'm low on iron or I ate too much gluten. No, it's my fault. And notice God's response in verse 9. He doesn't tell us how disappointed he is or tell us to try harder. He doesn't tell us that we've got one last chance and we better get it right this time. He forgives us. He deals with our sin for us. God is faithful. He promises to forgive and he does forgive time after time after time. You may not feel different after you've confessed, but you're always forgiven. And God is just. He won't punish you for a sin that Jesus has died to forgive. John says, let God deal with it. Go to God with empty hands. Confess your sins. Do you guys confess your sins regularly at CBE? As a church? That's a genuine question. I don't know the answer. Do you? No? Yeah? No. What a great thing that would be to do it. Do you do it at home? In your private prayers? What a great thing that would be to do. Like regularly. It's humbling, but it's wonderful. Drawing from the deep pool of God's grace and forgiveness. In verse 10, John kind of loops back, and he does this a heap. He kind of loops around a bunch of times on lots of different and important topics. And he says to us in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, in verse 8, it seems like he's talking about the sinful nature, having that, and in verse, in verse 8, and in verse 10, about sinful acts. Because it seems like some people are saying that they haven't committed any sin, effectively claiming to be perfect. And they're living in denial, and not only living in denial, they're doing something much worse than that. See, the big problem is that God says that we have all sinned. You probably know a verse like this. Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God says that through Paul. Romans 3, 23. So to say that we haven't sinned is to say that God is a liar. That God is not telling the truth. We reject God's words if we claim not to sin. 
But real Christians, real believers, people who truly belong to God, accept God's verdict on us and our lives. We sin. We sin. We confess our sin. And we receive forgiveness. But none of that is to say that John is soft on sin. No, quite the opposite. No, just because forgiveness is offered doesn't mean that John is soft on sin. No, look at verse, chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. Get that? Not sin. John wants his readers, he wants us to stop sinning. John is not exposing our sin to excuse it, but to get us to deal with it, to confess it, to discontinue it. John writes so that we won't feel okay about sin. Health is the goal, <coughs> excuse me, of a hospital so that people will stop being sick and unhealthy. Fitness is the goal of a gym so we'll stop being unfit or weak. Spiritual health and fitness is John's goal so that we stop sinning. Now, of course, conquering sin, stopping sinning, feels like climbing Mount Everest, doesn't it? To actually get to the stage where you really stop sinning profoundly. It sounds just so difficult, so hard, you wonder whether you'll ever get there. But apparently a journey of a thousand kilometres starts with a single step. So, start climbing. Stop sinning. Here's the truth. We have sinned, but we should stop. And while we try to stop, God graciously gives sinful old us a safety net, knowing that we fail, we fall, we sin. See, look at the second half of chapter 2, verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Notice there are twin instructions about sin. Stop sinning and turn to Jesus for forgiveness when you sin. And we must hold those two instructions together. See, if we only hear the second one about forgiveness, we might not take sin seriously and try to stop. And if we only hear the first one, stop sinning, we might despair every time we sin. But notice how committed God is to forgiving us. Chapter 2, verse 2. He, God, is the, Jesus actually, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the new sacrificial system, like the Old Testament sacrificial system, where the substitute dies, there was an animal in place of the guilty. Now we have Jesus, the great sacrifice, who dies in place of the guilty to take the judgment and the righteous anger of God for us and in our place. And Jesus is an eternal sacrifice, as verse 2 makes clear. Uh, sorry, an international, rather, sacrifice, as Jesus makes clear. A sacrifice not, not just for Jews like John, but for Australians and Malaysians and Singaporeans, for people from China or India and Indonesia from Africa, from Europe, from Latin America, even from the USA. Grace is the key when we do sin. 
So we turn to God and we receive His grace in Jesus. We need to stop sinning, but when we don't sin, when we don't stop, grace is the answer. I think when we go to places like the church, when we join in Christian community, we think that if I tell someone how much I've betrayed God and mistreated others, and I, how I don't have the ability within myself to change, they'll kind of kick us out or at least think we're terrible, that we don't belong. But we can see, I think, from 1 John chapter 1, that's not how it works. No, wonderfully, wonderfully, God forgives our sins and purifies us from all unrighteousness. Wonderfully, God has given us Jesus as our advocate, our go-between between us and the Father. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and so we come to God on the basis of the truth of what we've done, our sin, and the basis of what He's done, His death, and we turn from sin and to Him. And when we do that, we must belong. We do belong. All of us belong if we've done that. We're all in the same boat. All sinners saved by grace. All sin addicts who want to change. And so we have a deep connection with each other. And so we can have deep conversations with, with each other about our lives. About our struggles. Even about our sin. We can and we should because all of this is too hard to do on your own. That's why God gave us each other. That's why God gave us the church so that together with each other we can strive to walk in the light, to live God's way, to live for Jesus, confessing our sins, clinging to Jesus and his forgiveness and in learning to obey him more faithfully and more fully, knowing that through Jesus we belong. It's a great vision for a church, isn't it? A great thing to be striving for together, to together encourage each other to belong, to know that we belong, and to live as his people who walk in his light. So why not pray for that, that very thing? Let me pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much uh, that you, you've sent us Jesus so we can know about you. You sent us John who tells us the truth about Jesus. We thank you so much that you tell us the truth about our belonging, how we, we belong by believing. And please help us as people who belong to walk in the light, to flee from darkness. Please help us to stop sinning and yet when we do to turn to Jesus for forgiveness. And please help us to do all of these things together to encourage one another and spur each other on to stop sinning and to walk in the light. Please do these things we ask in the glory and honour and name of Jesus.